0: Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's
1: code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off. Bluenile.com code LISTEN.
2: Hi there, everyone. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. In Speech of Praise, Pliny, the Roman writer, outlined what he thought were the criteria for the ideal emperor. They should be generous, they should provide shows and spectacles they should be martial. He praises emperors whose successes are built on battlefields piled high with corpses and seas stained with blood. He must have a disdain for fakery and false claims. He must be a father to his people. The question is, how many emperors actually lived up to Pliny's high standards? Well, I'd like to know, and I'm going to the best in the business. Professor Dame Mary Beard, she's a legend, TV presenter, historian, academic, writer, commentator, uh, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. She's just written a new book called the *Emperor of Rome*, and, and in it, she points out that there was a pretty established system of one-man rule in Rome since Augustus in the mid-first century, and not much change for the following 250 years. So she says that you could have gone to sleep, for example, in 1 BC, and woken up 200 years later and still recognised the world around you. So she is taking that period and writing about the office, what it required, what skills the men needed to gain it and hold on to it, and whether the Roman people tolerated it, liked it, or hated it. We're still talking about this group of men, these Roman emperors, and I suppose work like Mary's is one of the reasons why. It's just so engaging. Enjoy!
0: 10. The atomic bombs dropped Nine. on Hiroshima. Eight. God saved the king. No black-white unity till there is Five. first some black unity. Never to go to war with
1: one another again. And lift off, and the shuttle has cleared
2: the tower. Mary Beard, thank you very much for coming back on the podcast. It's great to be here, Dan. <laughs> good to see you, good to see you. Now, Mary... You identify this period of around 30 emperors, when you say there's quite a lot of consistency in how they were viewed and the kind of lives they were. Some were killed, obviously. Some campaigned on the frontiers. But there's a consistency there. I guess I want to start by saying, how important was it that there was ambiguity around the role of emperor itself, you know, or even Augustus, the first emperor, he, he's sort of reticent sometimes, isn't he, to describe, is, is, that, is that important? Is that different to say kings and Mughal emperors and Chinese emperors in, in different periods and different places?
1: I think in a way it is. When the system of one-man rule is established at Rome, you know, a bit of a prequel under Julius Caesar, but then particularly by Augustus, It's established as a very delicate balancing act. I mean, it's kind of a little bit ambiguous from the very beginning. You know, what actually is the emperor? You know, Is he a king? Well, no, he's not a king. Is he one of us when he claims to be one of us, but he isn't really? So there's always a debate, I think, about what actually the emperor is doing. And in some ways, that makes it for a historian, I think, more interesting because they never stop trying to negotiate the boundary between um, one sort of ruler and another. And emperors are always in power, improvising. You know? So it's an empire of, of improvisation in some ways against a historical background.
2: But you still think there's consistency across the holders of the office that means that we can make some broad you know, observations about how they rule, how they live?
1: Yes, yeah, I do. I mean, I think they're both all different and all the same. (laughs) And I I think the tradition for talking about emperors has been very much to individualize them. And there's a a distinguished biographical tradition, know, in which um, emperors are deemed good or bad. Their virtues or their vices are laid out in lurid detail, both in the ancient world and in the modern, as if somehow they were... Really, very, very different one from another. Now, I think you know, in part, that's true. Every system of rule, monarchy, whatever, has its you know diligent George the sixth and its libertine Edward the seventh. So, of course, there's some difference. They're not identical. But as the system gets established, and Augustus has forty years to establish it, he's bloody lucky, actually. You find that, in a sense, for all the improvisations. These guys are doing, and they are all guys, much the same job in terms of, quote, ruling the Roman world throughout that period of the first three, almost 300 years of empire. And I think what's interesting is that I I found an unlikely support for this view in the person of Marcus Aurelius, you know, best selling author of the meditation, second century CE emperor. And he looks back at his predecessors and he says, "Mm," you know, basically same play, different cast. So I thought what it would be interesting to do is for all the ambiguities and ambivalences and differences, for all the hardworking guys and the libertines, just try to see what emperors were as a group. What was this play which was the same over 300 years?
2: That's the key, though. Did they rule the Roman world? What is the nature of power in this empire? It stretches at its peak from Carlisle to the Euphrates. How can one man rule over this world? Well, yeah, part of the book actually is to say, well, look, it's not just
1: one man in the end. There is usually one man at the top as the figurehead and believed to be the source of power, influence and control. Quite often, although forget it, there's two emperors ruling together. You know, Marcus Aurelius ruled with Lucius Verus as a, a two-emperor rule. But also, I mean, one of the basic rules of monarchy and autocracy, you know, if it's in any context larger than a village, is that no emperor, no king rules by himself. So you've got an enormous infrastructure of palace servants, enslaved people, provincial governors, soldiers, etc. Now, in many ways, Rome is a rather lean empire in that respect, that in terms of administrators on the ground in the distant parts of the empire, there's rather few. And in some ways, you'd say, look, this empire is being run sort of on a shoestring, with a lot of razzmatazz symbolically with an absolutely ruthless army, which can move where it needs. But otherwise, for all its history, really, Rome had been pretty happy if there was no trouble, right? Rome's kind of major priority is no trouble. And the way they guarantee no trouble under one man rule is by collaborating with the existing local elite who, in some ways, do their dirty work for them, you know, including raising the taxes and that kind of stuff so you've got a huge presence of the image of the emperor and yet actually well how can you have a hands-on control when you're three months away from the people on the margins you know you can't get an instruction there and back so it's wonderfully complicated in that way
2: and I guess there's a suggestion there that 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 means that there's a great ability within the system to deal with the bad and the mad that in the kind of Gibbon S tradition we love to think about and talk about is that you can can have a kind of total meltdown at the centre and be doing all sorts of awful things because of this devolved power structure that you've talked about.
1: Yeah, in some cases, I think that's true. I think we tend to overestimate the bad and the mad. You know, I think even the rather limited sense of Hands-on rule that you find with the Roman emperors. I mean, it makes no sense to think that you've got three hundred years of one psychopath after the next at the centre. I don't think that's how the Roman world is being run. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the stories about madness and badness, are not necessarily concocted, but they are given a lot of airtime after the emperor has ruled. You have to see the Roman empires in some ways. Absolutely not, as we often think about it. We kind of think, right, the emperor decides to do this. There's a policy for that or whatever. I think there's very little policy and there's very little big decision-making in the Roman Empire, particularly by the empire. There's a few things. When the Emperor Caracalla in 212 decides to give Roman citizenship to all free inhabitants of the Roman Empire, and that looks like it's a big one-off imperial decision but those kind of things are rare
2: yes we're so used to an activist state today aren't we and I mean it's big big top-down policy making stuff
1: and it's kind of is setting policy for the future now quite what any individual Roman thought the future was or how you might determine it or how you might change the way Rome was going to go that basic level that's one of the issues frankly what about the economy well Rome doesn't have a word for the economy, actually. And if you look as hard as you can through Roman writings, for people weighing up pros and cons of different kinds of action, again, that's very thin on the ground. I mean, the most sophisticated, and it's not very sophisticated, the most sophisticated consideration of different policy actions on the big scale, comes when a Greco-Roman geographer, Strabo, writing in the first century CE, wonders whether it would cost more than it was worth to conquer Britain. Would it cost, in the end, more to hold Britain than the revenue you get out of it? And he decides that it would cost more than it was worth. Now, for all kinds of reasons, that didn't Stop Claudius invading it and sort of conquering it, and with the emphasis on the sort of, but it looks very clear that Strabo was right, you know Britain was always a kind of a loss maker for Rome, but if you think about that, that's about as sophisticated as you get
2: What about? Geographical location. I mean, there's that lovely Henry the of France quote. I think I I rule with my ass in my saddle and my sword in my hand. <laughs> yes, well, D- some, is that true of yeah, Roman emperors? Yeah. First of all, did they have to have their ass in the saddle, and secondly, did they have to be warriors? They had to look as if they were
1: warriors. <laughs> and again, it's another of those points of ambivalent improvisation. You know, Augustus, first proper emperor, after suffering a terrible defeat in Germany thinks that everything's got a bit too thinly spread. And he says, we shouldn't expand the empire anymore. That's the end of expansion. And he's supposed to have left that as a kind of instruction for his successor. Now, the problem was that Rome from way back had seen the biggest form of glory that any Roman could acquire in terms of military conquest. So they were caught there, that they couldn't. They'd been told not to. They could see it was dangerous to expand. And yet they also needed to look like conquering heroes. Now, partly they do that by what people have called little vanity conquests. Now, vanity conquests, and it's perhaps a bit misleading because there were a a lot of people got killed in those vanity conquests. But you're picking off small areas to claim a great victory. I think also we're very used to seeing hundreds of statues of Roman emperors all dressed up in armour, looking as if they're, you know, heroic leaders of their troops, you know, and some of them were. But I came to think that in some ways those military images were almost a substitute for military activity, not a record of it.
2: That's nice. So let's get the Emperor out of bed in the morning. He made like Hadrian obviously moves around a lot, as you point out. Some moves a bit less, but wherever he is, is there a discernible kind of routine? Is there a rhythm to his day? What's he doing? Is he if he's not making big policy with his clever think tank buddies, presumably he's responding to incoming information, is he? Yeah. I mean One way of seeing the Roman Emperor, and I think it has in
1: certainly in recent academic literature been a bit too overemphasised, is actually to see him really as someone who receives letters, letters, begging letters, petitions. That What the Roman Emperor, in, in one view, and I think it's not entirely wrong, governs by responding. It's a government of correspondence. So the idea is that in a sense, the Emperor is at least ideologically, it cannot possibly be true, factually, is available to all the subjects of the empire, right? That anybody, in theory, can send him a letter send him a petition or ask for him to look at their legal cases, right down to sort of apparently trivial things like lost cows, or someone who's inadvertently killed by a falling chamber pot in a city in what is now Turkey, right? And we see emperors judging those kind of things. And one of the ways of kind of thinking about them and branding them, I think, is to think of them as pen-pushers as much as libertines. I and mean, that's much less glamorous for us. But, you know, I think that so often when Roman writers write about emperors, They imagine them pen stylus in hand. It comes out very clearly in one of the most appalling anecdotes, actually, about Hadrian, who is in the middle of his correspondence. A slave annoys him. So he stabs the slave's eye with his pen, blinding the slave in that eye. Sometime later, Hadrian feels terribly guilty and says, what can I give you back? What can I give you in recompense? And the slave, chillingly, I think, says, you could give me my eye back, please. That is a kind of an awful story about the disempowerment of the slave, but it's also a really interesting story of what Hadrian's weapon is. It's a pen. So I think that although it seems a bit um, less glamorous than Sex in the Swimming Pool, uh, other kind of bits of lurid story like that, we have to imagine the emperor at his correspondence. Much of it would have been written by somebody else. Much of it, he might just have put a tick at the bottom. Much of it might have got sent out under his name and he never saw it. Just like when we get a a letter from the prime minister, we don't actually think the prime minister wrote it, do we? So there's all sorts of help and infrastructure and yet the emperor is seen to be the guy that you can go to and that will respond. It's said that Vespasian, for example, in the later first century CE, you know, on his deathbed, he's getting up and he's actually meeting people who sent delegations to him. It's a responding mode in
2: large part, not entirely, but in large part. Dame Mary Beard. I like that little insight into your life there, getting letters from the Prime Minister. No, I do not know what it's like to get a letter from the Prime Minister, I must say, but obviously some of us are very familiar with that.
1: Dream on, Dan. I don't think I've ever had one either. So
2: So actually, come back to that Hadrian story. This issue of megalomaniacal... Are you able, as a classist, are you able to get close to these people? Can you observe the impact of supreme power on these people often who have themselves damaged traumatized people themselves can you get close
1: i think in writing this book i've got closer than i ever have before but i think they're always at that final moment when you think you're looking them in the eye they tend to be a little bit elusive i mean we know these emperors in some ways very intimately we know for example that well, We have a doctor's report about Marcus Aurelius and we know that when he had a nasty stomach upset, he was prescribed a kind of early version of an anal suppository. You know, we're looking into their bodily crevices. Um, we're looking down Commodus's throat to see his tonsillitis, this kind of thing. So you get, in a funny way, very close up. But in the end, what it was like to be that ordinary bloke who found himself or wanted to be or plotted to be, quotes, however limited it was, the ruler of the Roman world, I think it is always just outside your grasp. You know, let's try sometimes seeing this from his point of view. We're so used to telling the stories of Megalomania, you know, when Commodus, for example, goes up to the senators on the front row of the Colosseum, having just decapitated an ostrich, and he waves the ostrich's head at the senators, and we have an eyewitness account of this from a senator who says, "Well, we had to try not to giggle, you know, because actually it looks so funny." Uh, And one of them actually says, "I had to bite very hard on a laurel leaf from my from my wreath so that I didn't actually burst into laughter." And I do try to say from time to time, look, that's the way we we're always seeing them. But just imagine what it was like to be Commodus. How does it feel to be there in the Colosseum, 50,000 people looking at you, and you find yourself waving an ostrich head at a load of senators who are about to giggle at you? Now, um, maybe you say, oh, he's so self-obsessed, narcissistic and megalomaniac, he doesn't notice. I bet he does notice. And I kind of feel, although some of these emperors were horrible in the system in some ways, the system of power and violence that underpins it, is to me extremely distasteful. I kind of found I just got personally a tiny bit more sympathetic to those individuals who ended up ruling the Roman world, whatever that means. You know, I thought... It wasn't a great job, you know. And some people turned it down wisely.
2: You're listening to Dan Snow's History Hit, talking about emperors of Rome. More after this.
0: Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Selling a little
1: or a lot? Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
2: Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. There are accounts, and many in your book, of the fun. They did have some uh, opportunities to let their hair down, didn't they? Whether it's Hadrian's gigantic pleasure palace at Tivoli or, or Nero's uh, various schemes and Caligula's yachts, have biographers? You mentioned at the start of. the company, You think some biographies have sort of exaggerated that to criticise them, uh, but also you said there was some razzmatazz was important. So maintaining a court, an extravagant court, and consumption, I think, that matters, does it? yeah yeah I mean, how are you Emperor?
1: You're Emperor because you're seen to be Emperor. Now, there's a a very, very dangerous dividing line between seeming to be a tyrant and seeming to be Emperor. But you have to make a splash. I mean, when Augustus basically lays down a manifesto for one man rule, you know, one of the things you have to do is you have to give people money, not just shows and spectacles and free wheat you have to give people money. And in a way, some of the stories that we are used to of kind of very bad emperors, what you find when you look harder at those stories is that they're not just kind of examples of capricious madness. They're just getting some of the basic principles of imperial rule wrong. So Augustus is very clear that you give a lot of cash. What does Caligula do? He goes on the roof of a building in the Roman Forum and he literally throws cash at the people beneath. Now, that is pushing it too far, but it's in a sense obeying in a slightly exaggerated way one of the templates of imperial rule. I do think that a lot of these shock horror anecdotes that that usually fill biographies and make us think, my goodness, aren't they awful? A lot of them are, are underneath the surface. They're actually talking rather more complicatedly about getting imperial rule just wrong. You know, so Elagabalus in the third century, not a very well known emperor. He's generous too. So generous that he smothers, literally smothers his guests with rose petals falling from the ceiling. So they suffocate. Now, in a sense, that's a kind of question of, what is imperial generosity? When the emperor's generous, watch it, folks, because he can kill you. So I think there's complicated things going on here.
2: Who is the emperor most keen to be generous to? It's to shore up his power. Is it the people of Rome? Is it this kind of demos? Is it provincial elites. You know, it, it strikes me that when you look at Queen Elizabeth Tudor here in, in England, it's, there is a constituency that she cares about, but that constituency might be very different from one state to another. Who, who does the emperor have to keep sweet? Most of all, the soldiers.
1: By the late second, early third century, the numbers in the army are closer to half a million than a quarter of a million. And that is the one place where Rome doesn't stint on manpower. It might have few administrators in the sense per head of the population. It's got a lot of soldiers. And the one thing that the emperor is worried about is that they turn on him. So. Absolutely, fundamentally, he has to keep them sweet. And he does it by visiting them. He does it by mocking in, by being one of the lads, by saying, we can all eat the same food. I do like this camp made bread that you're um, serving me. Because if they turn on him, and they do twice in the period I'm talking about, then he's finished. And it's a hugely expensive. I mean, what Augustus did, in a sense, at the very beginning, he's got a masterstroke of the beginning of empire, was to nationalize the army and to to try to bring the army under the control of the state rather than the individual general. And he does that by having fixed terms of service, fixed pay, and a really healthy retirement bonus, basically a pension. And that single maneuver costs half the revenue of the Roman Empire. So he buys the acquiescence of the soldiers, uh, but at a very high price. And sometimes we know that they must have had problems with the pension pot, because we have stories of people visiting army bases and discovering elderly soldiers with no teeth and very grey hair who've been kept on after their, their standard term. And you know we all know now that if governments are short of money, one thing that things they do is they defer the pension age because you don't have to pay so much and the likelihood is that some of them will die before they claim it. Well, ancient Roman emperors already got that trick and were deferring the pension
2: age quite often, I think. Speaking of longevity, we're talking about a pretty successful imperial entity here, not including, of course, the Republic or, or the years that followed, just the bit that you cover in this period. Was that... um I'm afraid a big question here, Mary. What was the reason for that sort of relative success? Was it sort of geography and lack of competitors and sort of a bit of luck? Or, or was it something to do with these men, the institution that created? What was, what's your sense of why you get this reasonably stable period of 300 years that's allowed you to make this comparative study? Luck has something to do with it. And I think actually, one of the greatest strokes of luck
1: was that Augustus as the first emperor ruled for 40 years. If Augustus had died five years in, I think the story of the Roman Empire would be very different. I think that if you wanted to see a a kind of something more underlying it, it's that enough people have a reason to be invested in the system, not to want to overthrow it. I mean, there is no known proposal To go back to quasi democratic republican rule after the early 40s. You know, when in the first century CE, when Caligula is assassinated, not for political reasons, but actually because of a kind of internal dispute in the corridors of power, one guy does get up in the Senate and say, Time to call it a day with one man rule. We're going back to the republic. It was too little, too late. Claudius had already been proclaimed emperor anyway. But then the other senators saw that this apparent freedom fighter was wearing a ring which had Caligula's head on it. And that's of undermined. It undermined the whole point. And I think there is a way in which particularly the elite, both in the provinces and in Rome itself, find it more convenient to buy into the system than not to. That goes against the grain of what we're often told, because we have a sort of slightly heroic version of noble dissidents under the empire who are really wanting to outlaw the kind of corruption, the cruelty and the abuse of power that comes with one-man rule. There's probably not very many of them. A lot of people claim to have been a dissident when the Emperor's dead. And you know, there's something very, very similar about opposition to Roman imperial rule. You know, it's what we've seen in Europe in the mid-20th century. You know, a, there were actually rather few members of the resistance, but a hell of a lot of people afterwards who claimed they had been. And you see that in Rome. As soon as Domitian is assassinated, and all the guys who've been going along with him, holding office, having dinner with him, etc., etc. They readjust and turn and go behind the uh, the next man and they say he was a complete monster. He was an absolute monster. I mean, I was almost on the death list myself. You
2: know, dot, dot, dot. We could all write that story. On that, the next man, succession. There aren't that many successful father-son dynasties that endure, are there? Like, what's <laughs> no. going on? So what's going on no. with that? Is that is this some kind of brutal form of meritocracy and does that actually kind of benefit the institution?
1: Well, they like to claim that eventually. I mean, I, I think the real problem is, I mean, I've just said that Augustus got lucky and he lived for 40 years. He actually got unlucky because he didn't have an obvious successor. He was married for the second time to Livia. It was her second marriage. Each of them had had a child before or children before, but they had no children together. And so for most of Augustus's reign, he picks out somebody in the slightly more extended family, uh, the partners or the children of his daughter, Julia, or the relations on Livia's side of the family. He picks those out, formally adopts them, and in a sense implies by that that he's making them his heir. He gets very unlucky because they all die, right? <laughs> and, and Which gives rise to the idea that Livia's been quietly poisoning them because the one who finally comes to the throne is Livia's son Tiberius by her first marriage. Whether she did kill off all the other ones, we just don't know. But you see that where Augustus, in a sense puts down quite a lot of very clear markers about, about conquest, about generosity, etc. for his successors. The succession itself is a bit of a botched job, and it continues to be that within a culture that doesn't have an automatic rule of uh, primogeniture of the succession of the firstborn natural child, usually son, as we do. So succession is always a question of jockeying for position, allegations of foul play, who's in favour, who's not, who's been adopted by the ruling emperor. And it isn't actually until 100 years of one-man rule that a natural son succeeds his biological father. That's when Titus succeeds Vespasian. Otherwise, it's been a system of fudging and adoption. And eventually, in the 2nd century CE they turn adoption almost into a principle and claim a degree of meritocracy about it. It's better that the emperor should adopt his heir from a wide circle, not just his son, because that way you can get a better emperor and you can reward talent, etc., cetera, et cetera. Now, it was nothing like meritocracy. You know, 99.9% of the Roman imperial population had no chance of being spotted as a great future emperor. But through the second century, you find emperors succeeding by a kind of recognised system of adoption. Nerva adopts Trajan, Trajan
2: adopts Hadrian, and so on. And that works Reasonably well, you get some good emperors that way. Uh, well, that's what Gibbon thought. You know, when what, what does Baird think? What does Baird think?
1: Well, Gibbon thought it was brilliant. It was the best time to be alive in the whole <laughs> history of the world. Which I think um, Gibbon sometimes could be as narrow as he is inspirational. I think there is a problem because there's one basic rule that is obeyed throughout this period, from Augustus right up to the third century, that if you come to power through the influence of your father or your uncle, whatever, it is absolutely in your interests to make sure he gets a good press. So in the second century, when you have these guys adopting their successors, there's a very strong push, there's a real strong drive for the Next emperor on the throne to glorify his adoptive father who gave him the position of emperor. Now, that doesn't mean that they were nasty, not nice. I think it's very hard to tell which emperors were really nasty and which were really nice. But it does add to the kind of rosy glow that you get through the second century of one good bloke after another. What you get is one loyal successor after another in a sense, following the logic that you want the person who gave you the throne to be legitimate and good. So I think that we have to just be a bit careful. The Roman Empire throughout is an absolutely classic case of uh, history being written by the winners, or rather it's history being written by the successors. So if the guy before you is assassinated, you dump on him. If he gives you the
2: throne, you don't. I love it. Well, that's a great place to end. Thank you very much, Mary Bidd. What is your wonderful new book called? It's called Emperor of Rome. That's really original. It does title, what it says isn't in the it? tin? I think go with it. Go with it.
1: It does what it says in the tin. And actually, you mustn't worry that um, all those wonderful anecdotes that we know about Roman emperors are there about their weird habits and odd dietary requirements, etc. They're all there. I just tried to do something
2: different with it. Glad to hear it. Something for it. You can have your cake and eat it if you're listening to this. Um, Mary Beard, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Dan.
0: Small details are big surfaces? Tight corners are odd shapes? Flat, rounded, textured or tall? Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustolium's new custom spray five and one gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom spray five in one, only from Rustolium.
2: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science?